Hi, and welcome to another episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association, where I interview leaders in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heights, and I'm a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology Program at the University of Louisville. Today, I'm here with Dr. Courtney Keim, Associate Professor of Psychology at Bellarmine University and Chair of the Psychology in the Workplace Committee for the Kentucky Psychological Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Keim. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks, Hannah. I I really appreciate you asking me. Of course. So today we'll be focusing on your career trajectory first and understanding um, your path to become a psychologist, and then we'll delve into some more leadership-focused questions. First off, I just would like to hear a little bit about what attracted you to the field of psychology. I have that classic psychology undergraduate story, I think, which is that I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and change my major uh, many times, but kept getting drawn in to the psychology classes. I really liked that it was rooted in science, but that it also had practical, immediate applications to my life. And when I was younger and in college, I also very much loved kids and thought that naturally I should become a child clinical psychologist. And um, my first job after undergrad quickly made that aware to me that that was a terrible idea. So uh, I realized that that I didn't really have what it took to do that work, even though I love children. Um, it just wasn't for me. And I have been working since I was 16 years old. And I have all of these work experiences. When I found out that there was a whole area of psychology where you can apply the science of psychology to that part of life, it really intrigued me. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I had some epiphany, which is I tell students a lot of times, you, know, you don't just kind of walk through life and then like a lightning bolt, you have an epiphany about what you want to do for the rest of your life. It, it tends to be much slower and more effortful than that uh, to the point that when I applied for IO psychology graduate programs, it was more because I knew I didn't want to do all of the other things. And I was tired of bartending and waiting tables. So I went to graduate school, but I really didn't know what for. And IO was kind of the field that was left. And I just didn't feel necessarily that passion for it, mostly because the stuff that I knew about IO was um, very like calculated and it was very business focused. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school and started to find out more about the organizational side, if you will, the focus on health and well-being and reducing stress in employees. That's where I really started to feel a draw towards the field. Um, and then I also, as part of my, my doctoral training, as is typical, got roped into teaching as part of an assistantship and found out really very quickly that that was, that was not necessarily an epiphany, but that was definitely hitting in on a passion that I found out that I had. And so it was a draw both towards the field and the science of the field and the ability to be able to apply that to the workplace. And then this kind of added bonus that I could be a teacher and teach other people about this field and be around students that that's when it really became clear to me that becoming a, quote, psychologist was what was good for me and, and the perfect career fit. I love your point about 
kind of ruling out all the other options. Cause I think there isn't often that lightning strike. There's kind of a, a realization that, oh, I don't like this thing. I don't like this thing. I don't like this thing. This thing is left. Okay. Let's, let's try that. And I'm a firm believer that eliminating those possibilities is just as important, if not maybe more important than trying to find the perfect fit at the beginning. And it was only through having experiences that I was able to eliminate those fields. I loved kids. I loved psychology. It seems such a natural conclusion that becoming a therapist or a clinical psychologist would for, ch- for children would be a good fit. And it wasn't until I had an experience in the field that I realized that that wasn't for me. So I am always giving advice to my students that's thinking about yourself and who you are and identifying your your strengths and your skills, like knowing things about yourself is important, but it's also important to like get out of your head and get into the world and do some things and have experiences. And at the end of that experience, if you say, this is not for me, I don't want to do this career, then that is just as valuable, if not more valuable. And then I also am a a big believer in that you may not necessarily have a passion, like I feel like it's a well-intended advice to give students is like, find your passion. And, and I don't know that that is quite the right way to go because for me as an undergraduate, I didn't know what my passion was. I wasn't naturally skilled in something. It wasn't clear that I should become an actor or a singer. I didn't have some natural ability that directed me towards a career. And and I felt that because I couldn't identify my passion, I just felt really lost for a long time. And that was very disheartening for me. And, And now what I think about, and I'm certainly not the first psychologist to say this, but what I try to think about now and what I tell students is instead of thinking about your finding your passion, think about identifying your values and then try to find jobs that fit those values and recognize that you can become passionate about a job that matches your values and you could leave that job and go into a totally different kind of job or career that also matches your values and become passionate about that as well. Uh, So instead of, uh, as my grandfather did, right, when he was in his early 20s, he worked at Firestone and he worked at Firestone for 45 years and he retired from Firestone. Mm -hmm with a pension, like that's not the world that we live in anymore. And we do move around and we do change careers and that's okay. And so finding, if you have the luxury and the privilege to be able to do this, finding jobs and careers that match your values, I think is more important than finding a passion. I really like that. I think the idea of finding a passion can be very stressful, especially as an undergraduate or when you're still kind of figuring out your own identity. So thinking about how you put your values into the work that you do, how did you end up at Bellarmine as an assist or associate professor? Um, and then how did you end up as the chair of the Psychology in the Workplace Committee for KPF? Well, one of the things that I value is I do value people being kind. I, I value kindness and I value helping other people, like volunteering or giving of your time, being considerate of other people. I, I just really value those things. And so being someone who volunteers for committees like the Psychology in the Workplace Network, um, that was something that was very easy uh, for me. Um, 
So, but before I, I get too far into that, I guess I'll go chronologically and tell you how I got to Bellarmine because I got to Bellarmine first and then I got involved in KPA and, and KPF. When I was in graduate school, I did have the fortune, although I didn't know it at the time that it was a fortune, but I did have this opportunity to be able to teach a class. And I don't know if lots of the audience are psychologists, this might be like a really inside joke, um, but when I was in graduate school, I had to TA a graduate level research methods class. And the professor called me maybe an hour or two before the class was about to happen to tell me that he wasn't going to make it. He was at a conference and I had to do the lecture. And the lecture was on Campbell and Fisk multi-trait, multi-method matrix. And I almost, you know, my head almost just exploded. And I was so nervous about having to give that lecture And I went in to the classroom teaching people who were my age, by the way, like my co not people in my cohort, but the people in the cohort right below me. And I thought this is the most dense article I've ever read in my life and I don't understand what's happening. And in that three hour class, I wrote so many things that both of the chalkboards were filled. And at the end of the class, I was like pumped. I felt really um, energized. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. It was just really exciting. And in graduate school, I had the good fortune of also being able to take a teaching of psychology class where I was able to, in the fall semester, learn how to teach and how to give a lecture and practice that and record myself and video, you know, watch that video recording of myself and evaluate myself, which was kind of terrifying. But then it gave me a lot of feedback about how to do the work of a professor. And then in the spring semester, we learned about how to become a professor, about academia and doing research and um, how to get a job in academia. And the more that I found out about that career, um, it just really seemed to call to me as something that I would really love to do. And the opportunity to be able to teach, but also continue to do research was very intriguing. So When I was finishing up my dissertation, I also started looking for jobs in academia, and Bellarmine has an HR concentration in the undergraduate major. Bellarmine is a liberal arts um, university, and I went to a liberal arts school when I was in undergrad. And so I was very much called to that. And the job ad, because they have an HR concentration, the job ad was looking for an IO psychologist who wanted to be at a teaching-focused institution. And... I just thought, you know, this is a really great fit for me. Fingers crossed that it happens because getting a job in academia is a lot of luck, I think. And I I apparently was very lucky because they offered me the job and I accepted it and my family and I moved to Louisville for me to take the position. And when I got to Bellarmine, Lisa Wilner was still adjuncting for us. And of course, Lisa used to be the executive director of KPA and KPF and is now a state legislator. Um, And I immediately was drawn to Lisa and her personality and the work that she was doing. And she was so helpful to me and provided a lot of support to me as I started at Bellarmine. And I will not ever forget uh, standing in the hallway uh, with Lisa and Pam Carter and Lisa looking at Pam and saying, you know, you know what Courtney would be really good at? 
is, is she should be on that committee. She should be in the psychology and the workplace committee. <laughs> and here I am like new faculty, brand new, just started tenure track position, you know, moved my family. Um, and I was already kind of getting pegged as, as someone who would be good to participate in the work that was happening at KPA. And when I found out some of the things that they were doing in that committee, which was a lot of evaluating companies on whether or not they were psychologically healthy. And I thought, well, yeah, that sounds like something I could do. And so I joined the committee and then very soon after I joined, became the chairperson of the committee. And the next thing I know, I'm like on an airplane flying <laughs> to now represent Kentucky, um, this, this network. So, you know, if you had told me at the beginning, all of the things that would have been involved, I don't know that I would have said yes, but in that moment, it seemed like a small commitment that was matched to my values of um, the application of the science of psychology and health and wellness and being someone who could give back to the community and volunteer and provide service. And I would get to like work with Lisa. It was kind of a no-brainer to get involved that way in KPA. And I'm so glad that I did because it's led to so many opportunities that I would have never been a part of if I hadn't said yes. It's amazing how those those small commitments and small decisions we make can really make major changes down the line and kind of open our eyes to, to different opportunities. Yes, absolutely. And I really sometimes struggle with saying no, and I almost always say yes to things. But I find that when people ask me to do things in general, they're asking me to do things that I, I'm really interested in and that I'm passionate about and that I want to say yes to. I've gotten a little better about not taking on too much. That's something that I've had to learn as time has gone by. But I still do have a tendency to say yes when people ask me to do things. And you're right, like those little moments, those little experiences can open you up to a whole different avenue of your life that you wouldn't have gone on if you hadn't said yes to that small thing. So actually, when you were talking about teaching the class, not to jump back too far, but it really sounded like a perfect description of what being in flow is like. So I feel like that's really cool to see someone who had that experience and how that led them to the career they have now. Yes, that three hours just flew by. (laughs) I don't know that it flew by for the people who were in that class. (laughs) listening to me. But there is something about finding work that you can really engage in. Although, you know, to be totally honest, I can get into a, a, a sense of flow when I'm vacuuming my house, you know, like that's great. I, I really, especially if I have a podcast in and I'm listening, my earphones are in, and I'm listening to a podcast. I can go two hours and vacuuming all, I have two very large dogs and they shed a lot, and I vacuum a lot, and I, I can find that engagement and the passage of time. So, you know, I don't want to say, like, I wouldn't want people to hear that you have to find flow in your work for you to validate that that work is the perfect work for you and that it's meaningful. Um, I think that getting into a sense where you are engaged and interested in the things that you're doing and you kind of lose track of time and you find fulfillment, those can be all kinds of things. Um, 
if I had any musical ability, I probably would find that in playing a musical instrument. And I have a lot of musicians in my family, but I don't have any musician in my family who plays music to pay the bills. They all do it, um, not because they're not talented, but they just didn't have that luck to be able to make it in the music industry as a career. But they can still do it in other ways and get enjoyment from it and, and experience that sense of flow. And if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about the Healthy Workplace Committee, I'd love to learn more about what that committee does and, and share with our listeners a little bit more about that. Sure. The There's a little bit of a history there and um, the support and overarching umbrella of that program has changed quite a bit since I've joined it. So what it is now is very different from what it was when I got involved. Essentially, the American Psychological Association, using the structure that used to exist, said, what if we created a network of psychologists in all of the state territory associations, and these psychologists would come together around issues of psychology in the workplace. And that would mean that every state association, as well as all of the territories and all of the provinces in Canada, like every part of APA would have a representative who would be the contact person for having the state association involved in any psychology in the workplace efforts. Uh, Very early on, that centered around APA's Psychologically Healthy Workplace Awards, where they would ask the people in this network to go out talk to your contacts in the states and territories and get organizations who are doing good things to apply for this award that APA would give out every year. And many state associations, including Kentucky, would give out like state level awards. And then the the organizations that won the state level awards would then go up for competition to the national awards and get recognized there. And when I first started... Um, and became the rep for Kentucky. And as I said, I would now I'm getting flown to DC and I'm going to APA and I'm going to these meetings. And I was really at first surprised that I was one of the few IO psychologists like in the room when I got there. Um, I was also surprised that less than half of all of the possible associations that could be represented were represented. So I immediately started to see that there might be some problems potentially. Um, Number one, a lot of the people who were in the room were clinical psychologists who may not know anything about psychology in the workplace and kind of just got put on a committee and they're not even sure what they're supposed to be doing. And they also have gotten flown to DC and really sure about what's happening. Um, And a lot of the IO people who um, could have been involved or might naturally be involved in that process were not members of their state association. And so they weren't because they, their state associations are so centered around clinical psychologists and licensing and advocacy. Um, And I began to get 
it became very clear to me that like, wow, Kentucky is different. Cause I kept saying like, well, uh, Lisa doesn't say that, or Lisa would never, like I began to realize that not just Lisa as the executive director, but every person in Kentucky was so supportive of the workplace initiatives and educating organizations about how the science of psychology can be applied to the workplace and getting more Kentucky organizations to apply for these awards And the people who were in the state associations would be the ones going to the organizations to do site visits and focus groups with employees and evaluating the efforts that these organizations were doing. And yeah, I mean, it was just, there was so much support at the state level that I was kind of surprised that at the national level, it was a hot mess in many ways. And over the years, as the restructuring of APA has happened, now they have removed the awards away from the the directorate where it used to be. So there are no state-level awards anymore. The awards are kind of in flux. But I, through my work with that committee, there became this opportunity for me to serve on a strategic advisory panel for the restructuring of this national program. And because I was so vocal and um, passionate when I did go to D.C. and and, and was at these meetings at APA, I got asked if I wanted to serve in this advisory group and said yes to that. And so I've been doing that now for, gosh, three going on maybe four years. So that's got people from Puerto Rico, um, Canada, Wisconsin, Hawaii, South Carolina, like we have a handful of psychologists who were involved in that network that are now trying to help guide APA and what the next phase of this program is going to look like. So what that means for KPA is that even though we don't have those state level awards anymore, as I mentioned, KPA and KPF have been so supportive of these initiatives that the committee still exists in Kentucky. Like we said, hey, we're we're our own state. We're just going to keep the committee. And uh, we're going to say that we value um, psychology in the workplace and we want work to continue to happen. And so instead of now getting organizations to apply for awards, it's much more of an educational initiative. So we do things like our I Love My Job campaign in February, where we just get people to say why they love their jobs and hold signs with hearts on it and silly phrases and take pictures and we post it on social media and we share information about health and wellness in organizations through social media throughout the year and just any other kind of educational initiatives that come up. I have been fortunate to give a presentation on healthy workplaces to the Kentucky Nurses Association Conference which was really cool to be able to get into a room full of nurses and talk to them about what it means to be psychologically healthy in their jobs. Um, So it's a lot of that. It's I've been able to give a talk to a rotary club, which was also very interesting about, um, so it was a little bit of uh, not kidding you. Um, You know, we did the pledge of allegiance. We sang, she'll be coming around the mountain. And then I got up and I gave a presentation about psychologically healthy workplaces, right? Of the buffet. So, gosh, it's a great visual. (laughs) Yeah. I just say, I'm just saying yes. So anytime somebody in Kentucky asks me, will you come talk about this? Right. I'm saying yes. I've given presentations to Louisville Metro government. Um, Anybody who wants to hear more about what the science is behind 
psychologically healthy workplaces, I'm there. So, and the committee then is just anybody, any psychologist in Kentucky who's a member of KPA who wants to help and volunteer. Um, and students, undergraduate students are free members of KPA if they'd like to be. So as a professor, it's been very easy for me to recruit my undergraduate students to become involved in this and to help them get experiences giving um, presentations and talking to executives and leaders and organizations about psychology and health and wellness. Yeah, so it's it's really become more just about spreading the word in any way that we can and less about whatever's happening at APA. That's so interesting. It sounds like you have such a diverse set of experiences from talking to Rotary clubs to, to running social media campaigns. It's probably hard to decide, but do you have a favorite part of all the work that you do, if you could pinpoint one thing? Um, well, what a tough I, question. That is a tough question. Here's what I will tell you is one of the things that I love about IS psychology and psychology in general is that because it can be applied anywhere, I can talk about it anywhere. So I love being able to walk into organizations and talk to people in all kinds of jobs, in all walks of life, and have what I'm saying be meaningful to their work. That That's really cool. Being able to bring students into that is also a lot of fun. I get to see them get excited about the field of IO psychology I get to see them grow and develop in their skills and their knowledge and to give them opportunities to be in the room with people, deal makers and and executives and see that like, it's not scary, you know, that they are just people and that they're people who are trying to make good decisions about their employees. And we might be able to tell them something that might actually make a difference and help. You know, I, I was able to work with one organization, Youth Detention Services, which is a division of Metro government. We, we did a project with them a couple of years ago and they were just having a lot of, as you can imagine, that's very difficult work. And they were having some high turnover and employee morale was, was pretty low. And they got a new director and through my connections with the healthy workplace stuff, I had the opportunity to be able to talk with the director about how I might be able to have students work on a project to do something to help. So we created an employee recognition system or YDS. And I made it kind of a cross um, effort between the class I was teaching at Bellarmine and the work that I was doing as part of the psychology of the workplace committee for KPF. And it was a semester long project. The students came up with a system for recognizing employees for good work. And that is one of the dimensions of a psychologically healthy workplace. The director was able to implement that. And about a year later, I heard back from her that the employee engagement results for YDS had gone from up about 30 percentage points. She implemented some of those programs and policies. So that is really exciting. Like you, you're getting to teach students and have students gain valuable skills, but you're also really making a difference in the community. Um, But it's life and it's the real world. And so I would be remiss if I didn't point out that YDS was cut out of the budget for Metro government. And, you know, so all of the work that we did was kind of, um, I don't want to say for not, but it certainly was put on hold and I don't know what's happening with them now, but thinking that perhaps we did make a difference for people for a time is very rewarding. It's amazing when you can empower students to do high impact work like that. I think 
that makes for such a different undergrad experience rather than just only learning in the classroom. Yes, I can tell them all of the experiences that I've had and I can give them examples of times when I've gone into a company and, but it just is not the same as them going and actually sitting in and conducting focus groups with employees who were talking about what's good about their job or what's bad about their job and then developing interventions and strategies that can help. Mm -hmm. That work is just invaluable. Yeah, I imagine it would be invaluable. Thinking about COVID-19, what changes do you think will occur in the workplace once we go back to quote-unquote normal life? Yeah, I mean, that's the the elephant in the room, isn't it, for, for everything now? Mm-hmm. COVID is going to affect every part of our life. Um, well, first of all, I'll tell you that I'm using this, as as many people are, as an opportunity to, to do some work. So I'm currently teaching a summer class at Bellarmine, an online class, and I actually have the students working to create an organizational assessment for around COVID-19 issues. So that's so, awesome. Yeah. I mean, thinking about, again, like having the students do some work where they're learning, but also producing something that is applicable. I don't know all of the ways, and of course, there's no way for any of us to predict all of the ways in which COVID-19 and this pandemic are going to influence the world around us. I think what we do know is that there certainly is the potential for work to never be the same. And not in a bad way, but potentially in a good way. So this kind of massive change, I think, has forced organizations to really think about things like schedules and flexibility and work-life balance and to have to put some grace around um, the programs and policies that they may have in place around uh, working from home. And, you know, we I, I don't know if you remember, but that kind of viral video, gosh, it must have been about two years ago. Remember the, the guy who was doing the live interview um, with the BBC and his wife and kids were in the other room watching and then the kids like walked in when the wife didn't know and yes yeah <laughs> you know comes like bumbling and the other kid was like in a walker and everybody laughed at that and thought it was so cute and so funny um and now that's every one of us <laughs> <You know>? yep <laughs> <laughs> like we're we're almost all of that guy. We're all getting interrupted by uh, our um, our dogs and our kids and our parents and all of the things around because we are working from home. And so certainly that's, you think about that as something that's already being affected. And I, what you're seeing though, is that a lot of companies that maybe would have said, there's no way you can work from home and be productive. What we're seeing is that now this is, pandemic is forcing people to to kind of check those assumptions and to make different decisions and to do things and become innovative in ways that they never would have imagined before. I do worry, though, about the health and wellness of employees um, getting lost in the return to work. So that, that's one of the things that I'm really kind of putting my efforts and research on is, is what happens in three months or six months or a year down the road. Um, and are we making sure that we're taking into consideration all those parts of psychological health and well-being in our employees as, as we go back to work? I also, though, am trying to be realistic about the work that 
I can do in the middle of a global pandemic. Like I'm, I'm saying all of this and I, I hope people are not like going to roll their eyes as they listen to it. As I'm like rolling my eyes when I see other people posting like their preprint already about to do research on COVID. And like how I've, I've literally been trying to survive months and you're doing research. Like how is that even possible? Um, but you know, I, I think that it is something that we as psychologists, and that's what we initially go towards, is we're going towards the work that needs to be done and um, trying to find ways that our science might be able to help the world move forward. And the science of IO psychology, I hope, um, can be a part of that. I think it'll, it'll definitely be needed. I, the transition back to work I think while we're also excited for it to happen, kind of go back to routine, I think it'll be kind of fraught with unexpected challenges. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, and we know because we're psychologists that um, when we don't feel like we are in control and we are feeling threatened, that that increases our stress response. And this is the perfect storm of, I think, hitting on both of those things that Lazarus talks about, right? Primary and secondary uh, appraisal. So it's like, this is threatening and I can't control it. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I think that it's going to be, and very um, cross-discipline. You know, I will say that one of the things that I really have loved about the work that I've done for KPF and KPA and the committees that I've done and working in APA is I, I really have appreciated being able to collaborate with other kinds of psychologists, and also in some cases, other professionals outside of the field of psychology, because I've learned a lot. And I feel like these problems, like how to deal with COVID-19 and the return to work, um, obviously they go across discipline. And so it's really gonna have to be a collaborative effort for us to work together to try to find best practices and to use the science to, to help guide us in, in that process. So thinking about that, kind of zooming out a little bit, what kind of impact do you hope to make in the field or, or the community through both your research and practice? Well, I think I'm realistic about my expectations uh, for how my work is going to change the world. And, and I think that while I'm not producing a lot of journal articles in the Journal of Applied Psychology or getting a lot of NIH grants or producing a lot of that empirical work. What I, what I am doing is I am educating a lot of students and I have, am thinking about like how many hundreds of students have I taught over the years since I have started teaching uh, classes and um, which has been over 10 years. And I am really hopeful that the, the education and the guiding and the advising of students is what my lifelong impact is going to be on the field. Um, so I, I don't know that I'm ever going to get some kind of like major award for <laughs> my research, although I'm continuing to do research. Um, but what I'm trying to do is teach as many people as I can about how to make workplaces better. And that might be a first-year student in an intro class sitting in my classroom, or that could be an executive who I'm talking to in their company boardroom. 
I'm just trying to give away all of this information that I have like for free. Um, and again, because that is fulfilling to me and a value that I have, that's why I find the work that I'm doing for as a board member for KPF and as now continuing to be this chairperson for the psychology in the workplace uh, committee for KPF. Like I'm giving, I'm, I'm just giving it away for free. And I'm hoping that those, the effort that I'm making and educating all of those people will have some kind of long lasting impacts that I might never even know about somewhere down the road. Yeah. So thinking about when you're facing a challenge that feels unachievable or unattainable, how do you keep your motivation up? Oh yeah. Well, I, that's a great question. It's kind of a classic motivation question, isn't it? Like I'm, you ask that question and immediately like all of these motivation theories are going in my mind. Like, what do I talk about? Self-determination theory, goal setting theory. Um, I think for me, there is some intrinsic reward that comes from doing the work that I do. And so it's easy for me to be motivated because I care so much about my students that it's easy for me to wake up in the morning and be excited about the going to work. Um, I care so much about educating people about how workplaces could be better. I mean, we spend a third of our waking lives working. That's a long time in your life um, to be miserable. And I have so many people who are miserable in their jobs and in their work. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? So I think when you know that there's a better way, you're kind of passionate and never ending in your energy to try to do something to change that because you know that it can be better. And But I'm also a person who likes to make to-do lists and cross off uh, things that I'm doing and reward myself with, um, you know, a good bottle of wine or uh, a Netflix binge. So I've met some kind of goal. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I find both intrinsic and extrinsic motivators to be helpful uh, for me. It's all about finding that, that right balance. So thinking about kind of challenges and COVID-19 has definitely been an unexpected challenge for a lot of people. Um, could you tell me a story about a challenge that you faced and how you went about overcoming that challenge? Well, certainly. I mean, life is full of a lot of those challenges. Um, and, you know, we, we grow from them and we learn from them as best we can. I mean, obviously, just the switching to all online classes during the middle of the pandemic was really very difficult. Um, and, you know, I, uh, like a lot of people, um, suffer from anxiety and, and, and see a therapist for that. So it was uh, really hard when the classes were canceled and the whole world seemed like it was falling apart. Um, and you had this monumental task of like taking all of your classes online. I mean, it was really, really difficult. And I did all of the things that I know to do when I'm experiencing stress, which is that, right. I was like meditating and doing, trying to do yoga every single day, even if it was only like five or 10 minutes. Um, and it was still not enough, you know? And so I remember like calling my therapist and she, she basically said like, yeah, this is not enough. Like, you know, you're going to have to try new things. And, um, and so I really 
appreciate her and, and the, the um, guidance that she gave me and thinking about all of the tools that I have in my toolbox. And instead of trying to like force meditation to make me feel better or feel less anxious in the moment, like if it's not working, then just do something else. Right. So I tried all kinds of things to um, help with that transition, thinking about, again, the science of psychology and what does psychology say. And so I used a lot of distraction and exercise and taking walks and Um, But I also tried to focus on helping other people. And what I found was that after taking a few days to really like wait for that fight or flight response to wear off, that I just really started putting my efforts towards helping my students. And I, it was that kind of like, you know, other, like outside of yourself experience that you might have. And maybe this is something that clinical psychologists experience all the time, Um, But I would find myself sitting down and having a phone call or a virtual meeting with a student and giving them all of this advice and then like hanging up the phone or or ending that virtual meeting and just being a complete wreck myself. But man, I could put myself in front of the students and focus on them and give them the advice. It was hard for me sometimes to take my own advice, I guess. Um, But really focusing on helping other people got me through that really challenging time of just adjusting, not just to the challenge of online classes, but just the challenge of everything changing. Um, And as we know, like, you know, being uh, stressors being present, eventually you kind of get used to them. And after some time, you know, the stress level comes down to a manageable level and we kind of used to, okay, now this is our new normal. Okay. Um, and I really feel fortunate. I will say that like my job in Bellarmine gave us a few days to be able to adjust. Like we had time where we had no classes and we were not expected to talk to students or grade anything or have anything to do. Like we just really took a pause and had some time. And then we got a lot of support and help. Uh, to help us like move our work to online. So I was really fortunate that that I had this challenge, this really incredible challenge, but I was supported by my family and my therapist and my work and my friends. Like I was really getting that support from all sides. So it helped me be able to handle that challenge and come out, um, I think, positively overall. Oh, I, I love that idea of kind of, shaking up your toolkit in times when you're faced with stressors that are completely novel. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So what do you feel are some of the most significant factors maybe outside of COVID-19 times that assist you in getting others committed to the importance of workplace well-being? Well, specifically when it comes to the work that needs to be done for the committee, um, I feel very fortunate in that my job as a professor means that I'm constantly surrounded by students who are ready to learn and passionate and want to grow their skills and develop. And they are maybe looking to build a resume. And so they're willing to donate their time and to volunteer. And I also, they're a captive audience too. Like they don't have a choice if they're sitting in my class, they have to hear about health and wellness and organizations and and the work that we're doing at at KPF with the committee. So I find that um, 
I spread the word and then the students who were really interested in that come to me and, and want to do more. Yeah, so now I'd like to move into some more leadership-focused questions. So how are you thinking about leadership as COVID-19 continues to impact all of us? And I was wondering if you could also describe an example of good leadership during this time. I think that good leaders are people who are really in tune to other people's thoughts and their feelings and uh, have that level of empathy to be able to feel how others are feeling, but then also to provide like some sense of clarity to people. I I feel like so many of us might experience like misdirection or we're just not sure like where to put our efforts or what to do. And I think that good leaders uh, right now are going to be leaders who have that vision and are able to articulate a vision and coalesce people around movements to that vision. Uh, and people who are open and honest and, and authentic and people who really listen to others and, and, and try to guide other people towards, towards a movement. So yeah, I, I, mean, I, think, I think that's good leaders at any time, but certainly having and offering a sense of direction to other people right now, I think is really crucial because so many people do feel lost and afraid and stressed and unsure of what's gonna happen. Um, An example that I think of about like someone who has done a really good job dealing with the difficult decisions that have had to be made during this like COVID crisis um, is the CEO of Airbnb, uh, Ryan Chesky. I don't know if you heard about this letter that he sent and the decisions that Airbnb made when they had to lay off, I think like 25% of their workforce. Um, And he just, he, he wrote this long letter and it was really, I thought, well done. I mean, that's such a difficult decision to have to lay off so many, you know, hundreds, I think a you know, thousand people uh, from your workforce. And he, he did it in such a way that was like full of like honesty and open communication and a lot of empathy. So the people that he had to lay off, he was like, here's how we made the decision about these people that are going to have to leave. And we're going to tie this back to the mission of the organization and what, what our future um, goals are. Like, we're going to get rid of this division because it's not really who we are. We're going to focus on this. And then he was really empathetic in the way that he handled the people who did have to get let go. Um, And not just reminding them about like, don't forget about our our, uh, mental health resources, but he also, he made them all stakeholders and shareholders, like even if they hadn't been there for long enough to qualify. But then he did this really cool inventive thing, which is where he took all of these great employees and he basically marketed them to other organizations. Like he created this resource where these employees who got let go could find future employment. And it was just very, I thought, such a delicate way to handle such a terrible thing to have to happen. Instead of just laying people off and saying good luck, like they really did a lot of work to try to help those people find future employment and take care of themselves. And I was, I was really impressed by that. I mean, you could just get a sense that like when he said at the end of his letter, like, I really care about you guys, like 
you could see that he meant that in his actions and in the things that Airbnb actually did. That's wild. That is a really good example of, of leadership at this time, especially when you have to make hard choices. So thinking about a great leadership experience you've had, could you just describe that and kind of what about it made it special to you? I was on a committee at work um, for this like current academic year. And, and the person who was leading that committee, I thought I was just so impressed by the way that she handled being a leader for that committee. She was very empathetic and warm and she was gracious and appreciative of the work that people were, were doing. She gave very like clear directions on the work that needed to be done. Great feedback when work was submitted And she also was like available to answer questions and to offer more guidance when needed. And and importantly, to not be afraid to get the work done. So I, for example, like one time went to ask her a question about what should we do? And instead of just like giving me a brief answer and brushing me to the side, she started answering. But as she's answering me, she's typing in her computer, like she's pulling up a new document and like she's doing the work. And I said, you know, you're busy. I can come. She's like, oh, no. You know, so it wasn't just that she was directing people, but that she was willing to actually get in there and help and do the work, which I thought was so important. Um, and, And the way that she directed the work that had to be done on that committee when COVID happened and we were all now all of a sudden, like we had all of these grand plans for what we were going to have done by the end of the academic year. And yeah, I mean, she just, she guided us through that transition really beautifully. And I I really was like watching her a lot because I was thinking, gosh, I want to be like that. If I have to lead a committee, let me pay attention to the work that she's doing and the way that she is handling meetings and communication, because that's the kind of leader that I want to be. Not sure if you've heard of the book, The Leadership Challenge or not, but that example reminded me a lot of the quite a few vignettes um, in the book that describe good leaders as being people who are willing to kind of get their hands dirty as well and do the work that and, and not feel like they're above it in any kind of way. So I feel like the leader you described really exemplified that that trait. Yes, absolutely. It's someone who's willing to to get in there. Um, and help and do the work when when needed. But I would also say that effective leaders trust their employees to do the work that they are capable of doing as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessary that you have to jump in every time and show them how it's done. Sometimes you have to trust that they know how to do it and let them let them do it. The power of delegation. This is why there's so many leadership books that are written and available for purchase. <laughs> yeah. Than done, right? <laughs> That's so true. So thinking about the full picture of leadership, what lessons have you learned? Would you want to give to other psychologists about being an effective leader? One of the best quotes that I have seen in a leadership book um, is a book called um, Be the Boss Everyone Wants to Work For by Bill Gentry. And in that book, uh, Bill argues that instead of following the golden rule which is treat others how you want to be treated, that you should follow the platinum rule, which is treat others how they want to be treated. Mm. And I find that that is really crucially important to being a leader is 
not in, not making the assumption that everyone thinks the way that you do or everyone is rewarded in the same way that you are or that everyone wants to be treated the way that you would want to be treated. So just because you like to be micromanaged doesn't mean everyone else does. And in order for you to be able to follow the platinum rule and treat others how they want to be treated, it implies that you know that about them, that you know how they want to be treated, that you've communicated with them, that you have talked with them about their uh, development and their um, wants and desires and habits and, and that you have a sense of who they are and how they want to be in your organization, where they want to go. So I find that there's so much like that's unsaid about that really simple rule um, that implies that leaders have to not make it about themselves, but make it about the other people who are around them. And it really, too, it requires you to know a lot about yourself and to have that kind of introspection and to know your own faults and weaknesses and your own tendencies and to be able to kind of stop that. Uh, and, you know, I am a very extroverted person and I like to make decisions by talking out loud. Um, and I have to recognize that not everyone is the same way as I am. And so it, it's, it's trying to really get to know the other person, being a good listener, and then guiding them in the way that's best for them. Such a simple yet insightful quote. I, I really like that. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good book. I've got it right here. It's a oh. <laughs> oh, that's a great cover. Yeah, it's um, Be the Boss Everyone Wants to Work For, A Guide for New Leaders. And it's um, uh, William Gentry, Bill Gentry, who's an IO psychologist and okay. a lot of experience in uh, leadership. Um, yeah, so the giant red uh, coffee mug on the front is very kind of catching, but it's it's not a, not a super long book. So I find that it's very approachable. And for people who are starting out in, on this leadership journey, he uses a lot of science and research in his guidance of leadership principles. And and but it's just very digestible and I think easy to understand. And and again, that platinum rule: treat others how they want to be treated is something that you can stick with you that you can easily remember. And when you're in the moment trying to direct and motivate other people, you can remember that and, and try to think through, do I know what other people want and am I giving them uh, what they want and treating them the way that they would like to be treated? Book is definitely going up the top of my reading list now. <laughs> um, thank you. So I think that's all the time we have left for today. And thank you for your time so much. I know we've run over. It's been such a pleasure getting to speak with you and learning about your career path and your your take on leadership has been really insightful. Well, thanks, Hannah. I, I really appreciate you asking me uh, to do this and, and for engaging in this activity. I, I really hope um, that it's successful and that people are able to to listen and to get something out of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible. 